You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. He said, you know, a lot of our time management issues are emotional management issues. And then it just and it dawned on me because of what I do um, outside of the show. A lot of our relationship issues are emotional management issues. So think about this. When you think of your fight, the biggest argument you have with a friend, a family member, a neighbor, um, do you have – do you lose control? Do you feel rejected, dejected? Do you get angry? Do you feel hurt beyond measure? Do you get sick of it? You're tired. You're exhausted. You're worn out. A lot of this, if you notice, they're all emotions and they're emotional reactions. They're emotional management um, issues. And as as I've been working with couples, I had a couple come in the other day and basically the story goes like this. She um, – they were signing up. They went on a vacation to Hawaii. And while they were there, part of the deal was they had to go listen to a time uh, – like a timeshare meeting, right? Where a timeshare is where you go own one whatever, 40th of a condo in Hawaii and you put $20,000 down and then you get to go use it once every year or whatever. So a lot of these companies, you know, they've got great resorts all over the world and then you can go and and go to all of those great areas. So this couple is there just enjoying basking in the beautiful glow of Hawaii. And while they're signing up, it's a couple – the husband had been married before, so it's a second marriage for him. And, um, you know, they've had tension a long time. Uh, they've been married about two or three years, but it's been tense just because of, you know, trying to merge these new families and things. So as they're signing up for the timeshare, the husband is is entering their names uh, into like the register that they're there ready for their meeting. And he enters his name and then he puts his ex-wife's name instead of his new wife's name. And she, you know, was paying attention and noticed that. Okay, so what we call that in my business, that's the stimulus right there, right? That is now, that is the, this is the moment where the cage fight begins. And the minute the name was down, she saw it and she had an immediate emotional reaction to it, which was kind of like, what? Prepare to die. And he, he realized what he had done and... He kind of froze. He hadn't looked at her, his wife yet, but he immediately had his own reaction like, ah, jeez, I'm dead. I'm dead. Hope she didn't see that. And then he crosses the name off and puts his wife's, his second wife's name on. Okay. But that moment created this situation that then eventually, because we didn't manage our emotions in that moment, it turned into... About two or three days of not talking, one day of the man not even being allowed in the hotel room, so he slept on the beach like a vagrant, and all, um, and they they fought and fought and fought, and then actually made an appointment to come see me 
while they were still on their vacation, and then they got in. So when I say relationship issues are emotional management issues, that's exactly what I mean. She had an emotional reaction to what was going on. He had a reaction to what was going on. And because nobody could control the emotion, manage their own emotion, or lower their partner's emotion, it became an emotional, you know, roller coaster and, quite honestly, an emotional explosion. So I wanted to take you through some tools and some ideas to help us all recognize that in our relationships, it's if you don't manage your own emotion, you're setting yourself up. Because the pain, no matter what, is going to be yours. Well, yeah, but if I make it painful enough for him. But if you're making it painful for your partner, you're the one that's still going to pay, right? Because you have to maintain the pain in order to make it hurtful to another. So some rules, very basic rules. Rule number one, you are not your emotions. Because you feel angry doesn't mean you have to be angry. You can have a feeling as a human being and not ride it, you know, to death. You're not a dog. You don't have to just, you, you can think through this. You can process it. Why would a loving, decent, great, amazing guy write down his ex-wife's name? Well, because he's thinking about her. Maybe. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's just not thinking at all. Maybe he's going by habit. Maybe it has something to do with the mere fact that for, I don't know, how many years? Uh, eight, nine years, he was married to one woman, and he's instead got two hours with – or two years with this other woman. Well, yeah, but he should remember me more, right? Well, maybe. But you're not your emotion. You don't have to just react. You also are an agent that can choose and be what you need to be in this moment. You're, remember, emotions are there to teach you. They're there to help you. They're there to guide you. The reason both people were freaking out was so that we would pay attention to the moment. It, we weren't – we didn't the, – the wife didn't need to freak out and the husband didn't need to fear because this was catastrophic. It didn't need to be catastrophic. It was just, oh, we need to pay attention to this. Emotions are there to make sure we pay attention. They're there to make sure we take advantage of the right opportunity to handle something. And so we could have just used the emotion as a tool to help us. But what ended up happening to this couple is they ended up blowing up. They hurt themselves. They hurt each other. And in the end, it was probably because of their insecurities. We've got to learn that if you have an emotional response to something, it's, even if it's justified, I get it. You should be – if you were in a car accident that a drunk driver caused and it hurt you, you should be emotional and you should be angry. I'm not saying don't be angry. I am saying however long you allow the emotion to manage you is how long you will suffer. So our goal would then be to find another emotion. And one of the things um, we talk about a lot on the show is, you know, find your your best self. So our lowest self will just take the emotion and run with it because we're afraid, we're hurt, we're worried, we're concerned. But our highest self um, will take us to another another level. This couple, when they finally got to my office, all I did eventually after talking to them is I showed them that they have many responses to this same situation – but I asked them very quite simply, um, if, if all of a sudden one of you were sick, if one of you had cancer, would, what would matter about this? And they're both like, well, nothing. Why wouldn't it matter if one of you, if one of you really had cancer? And by the way, interestingly, one of them is sick. 
And it is scary. It's scary for them. The fear is the woman's afraid that she might she might be more easily replaceable if she's not already making an imprint on this guy that he can't get the name right. But it was out of fear she responded. And then his fear about how she responds created an issue. But all of a sudden, if we could get present and be our best self, which we tend to be when someone's sick, we tend to be our best self when we are more in our highest values and our highest principles. Things tend to work better for us. So think about it. Think about your relationships. And don't just assume that your problems are your partner. They might very well just be your emotions and your emotional inability to manage those emotions. Emotional intelligence, as we wrap it up, is very basically just a few skills. Emotionally intelligent people recognize their own emotion and they know how to lower them and manage them and make them healthy. Emotionally intelligent people also know how to recognize the emotion of others and they know how to help those people lower their emotion. And emotionally intelligent people also know how to enroll people into their emotions and get people to buy into their good emotions. So if you are having relationship problems, can I suggest, especially if you can't, you seem like you can't get any progress going, don't maybe stop trying to work on your partner and instead just start learning some emotional intelligence skills, managing your own feelings, trying to not be so fearful, trying to operate out of your highest self, your best self. That essence, that goodness that's inside of every one of us when we choose to be good. Anyway, Emotional Management 101. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. $201 billion, folks, for mental health uh, care. That's it's just crazy, crazy numbers. But there are some things, let me just suggest, that you can do to manage uh, or at least try to work and coach yourself through some of your own uh, anxiety issues We'll particularly today talk about anxiety, and I work with a lot of uh, just a lot of people. Um, so many times I'll have a mom and a dad bring their kids in to see me, and as we sit down, they'll start just talking about how their child hates school. They'll talk about the you know they have a hard time going out and socializing and doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and it worries the parents, right? And so you have a mom sitting there saying, look, aren't you going to go play? You really ought to go play. The other kids are playing. Why don't you ever want to play? You're such a disappointment. And even if it's not like intentionally said that you're not cutting it, something's weird with you, um, they already know that. These kids know that. And what I find is a lot of times an anxious parent comes in and they're worried and, by the way, anxious about their child who probably – has a little of their own anxiety, whether it's social anxiety or what have you. And so what I do, uh, one of the things I do in my organization is I help um, coach people through uh, their anxiety. And there's just, there's a lot of great research. And by the way, the, one of the number one ways to deal with your anxiety, 85% of it roughly, um, is simply your breathing, period. Usually when you're anxious, your your body starts to uh, – because of the, the, the hormones and what's happening, your breathing tends to be more shallow and fast, right? So a shallow, fast, rapid breathing, which makes it so all of a sudden you're not getting a deep, full breath, which stresses you out. Yeah. I think I was talking about something else. But uh, like, you know, Lord Vader, for example. Lord Vader sometimes might have anxiety. Who knows? But one way we can deal with it is um, is breathing. 
just a deep cleansing breath, a deep enough breath that your chest, your belly, everything just pops out when you take that breath. And if you take a couple of those, you'll immediately feel some of the tension, the anxiousness, it'll dissipate. One reason is because your body is getting the air it needs. Another way that you can do this is um, talk it out. One of the fastest ways to get your anxiety out of you is simply to share it with another person. But sometimes it stresses you to share it so you don't share it, right? And instead you go, maybe you pull away, you disappear, you, you maybe medicate. A lot of people just go medicate their anxieties and emotions. They just try to numb them. They'll drink, they'll, you know, do marijuana. But they're doing what they can to get rid of this anxiety and to relax. By the way, others are taking pharmaceutical pills that are coming from their doctor, right? One might be legal, one's illegal. But the the point, I guess, behind it is we're still using some other method, a drug, to manage our emotion and our anxiety. It's needed. I get it for some. I get it. Um, I personally would suggest you go to the legal form because you're probably going to have less anxiety, right, than chasing down the illegal form. But everyone should try to find a person or be the person that someone that you care about can share an oath to. Uh, Think about it. Do you have somebody you can talk out your most difficult things in life? Because if you don't, then you're going to stuff them. And when you stuff them, it's going to probably make you more anxious and usually more or less likely that you're going to go act and do what you need to do. And then when anxious people don't go do what they need to do, they start to get depressed because they're not cutting it. They're not cutting it. Um, An activity that you might want to do is just find that one person you can share your deep feelings and concerns with, track them down, and even tell them, look, you're you're kind of my go-to person on some of this, and I don't want to burden you. I don't want to overdo it, but could we just plan a time to meet every couple of weeks and talk? or however often that it works out for both of you. Another way to get some of the anxiety out is to write it out. One of my favorite activities with my clients is when they're feeling stressed, they've got a lot on their mind. If they've got stuff they've got to do, go write it down. Write your to-do list. Make a big, fat, nasty, gnarly to-do list. But some of the things aren't part of a to-do list. It's just feelings you're feeling. You're feeling overwhelmed. Your thoughts are swirling around in your mind. And what I'd suggest to my clients that they do is they write what they're feeling. Whatever they're thinking, they write it out. Like, holy cow, this job's driving me crazy. I, if I have one more person do this, I'm going to go crazy. Write your feelings out. And then what I ask them to do is write another line as they're writing. Instead of writing on a new line every time, write, all, write on the same line over the same sentence you wrote earlier. And then on the third time, go do it a third time on the same line. So you're going to write a sentence three times on the same line. And what's cool about it is it gets all the ideas out, the thoughts out. It gets the energy out, the emotion out without ever – without making it readable. So you can pretty much say whatever you need to say. It also releases the energy because it it takes energy to write. So by the time you're done getting that energy out, it's out of you. You're tired. You're exhausted. It's powerful. Another tool, think it out. You can sometimes think your anxieties away by simply, you know, being realistic and gathering data instead of just automatically taking the negative thoughts of the fears of the future and this pressurized world. Start using, you know, a part of your brain to actually evaluate your thinking. Notice your thoughts. 
Go through what you're thinking in your head. Okay, so that's a negative thought. What's another way to look for this? Another way to think it out is to look for more evidence. Usually when you talk to somebody that's anxious, they don't have all the evidence of what's going on because they've only collected the fearful evidence. But what I would always ask my son who was suffering with this, I'd say, can you give me some examples of where you're doing really well at school? And amazingly, there was an abundance of answers. And it starts to let his cognitive thinking override some of his emotion. Another tool that I think is super powerful is to turn your anxiety out. A lot of anxiety, I believe, is just we're so self-focused because it, you know, we're collapsing in on ourselves. And what we might want to try to do is find a way to serve our way out of this anxiety. Get out of yourself and go start offering yourself your tools, your resources, your help, your guidance – Offer to serve others, and as you offer to serve others, you get that great happy neurotransmitter, dopamine, starts to make you feel good. Anyway, folks, it's a tough game. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying there are other answers. There's four right there. I got many, many more, and uh, they're yours, and they're free. Start there, or get online and start researching it. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, fashion trends fade in and out, and with them, the idea of beauty shifts just as frequently. What was considered the ideal woman 40 years ago looks entirely different in today's society. So what exactly is it that influences the idea of beauty, and how does this impact the lives of women? Joining us today is Autumn Whitefield Madrano. She is the um, author of Face Value, The Hidden Ways Beauty Shapes Women's Lives. Her book takes a deeper look at the relationship between appearance and uh, science, social media, friendship, and many other societal influences. Uh, Autumn Whitefield Madrano, we welcome you to the show. Thanks for being with us today. Um, now, talk to us about your background. How did you what you know what led you into this field of beauty appearance? I guess other than just being born a female. You know, it's funny. I have you know certain professional qualifications. I um, I've been working in women's magazines for most of my career, but I started at Ms. Magazine, so like you know this flagship magazine of the feminist movement. But really, my number one qualification for writing about beauty is being a woman who thinks about these things. I mean, and that's what I think is so interesting. The pressure, the changing standards, um, and and just, I don't know, the influx of now social media and the ability to spread images around, It's it really seems like the book that you've, you've written is this convergence of all the new technologies plus, plus really an in-depth look at the latest uh, and greatest research about um, some of these kind of, I guess, historical beauty myths. What are some of the myths that we have to blow up? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, one of the myths is that I think people tend to be very either-or in where they think beauty standards come from. There's like the camp, there's the evolutionary psychology camp that says, okay, beauty standards have more or less been the same for centuries, and so it's built into us, and the things that we find beautiful signal fertility and reproductive health, so we can't change them. And then there's the camp that says, no, these beauty standards are cultural. I mean, as you pointed out, the ideal woman today looks 
somewhat different than she did 50 years ago. Mm. It'll probably look different in 50 years. And that camp is like, okay, these beauty standards are malleable, which means that they're, to some degree, political. So what can we do to shift them and change them when, when they become harmful? And what I found in my research is that it's, you know, surprise, it's both. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's both, and it's individual, and it's just a really complex relationship between what we find beautiful and, you know, this concept, this almost philosophical concept of beauty itself. It's uh, it's funny how every specialist is going to redefine it their way, exactly. uh, right? It's it's our DNA for some. It's no, it's our it's our socialization. We socialize these be- these beauty standards, these beauty norms. But one of the things in your research too, I, I notice is that so- some of the things that we thought were kind of an absolute, and I guess it's kind of. I guess that would be more an evolutionary approach. It would be, I mean, just just the measurements, right? The the typical ideal measurements of a female. Yes, I mean the classic example there is the waist hip ratio. Right. And what what that that's about is, I mean, think of the classic hourglass curves, which have been a mark of beauty for centuries. You know, the small waist, the bigger hips, and that has been a mark of beauty for centuries. So uh, certainly, well. It's been a market beauty for centuries, and so researchers have tried to get even more specific. Instead of just saying, oh, we like curvy hips on the women, um, what they've tried to do is get the precise, exact <laughs> measurement and ratio. And in 1993, uh, these researchers did exactly that. They studied um, icons of beauty, Playboy centerfolds, and Miss America contestants hmm. specifically, and measured the, or took their measurements, did the calculations, and decided that... <laughs> The ideal waist-hip ratio was within 0.02 points of a 0.70 ratio. I mean, <laughs> this incredibly right. detailed measurement, when in fact, later studies showed that that wasn't really the case and that the measurements weren't 100% correct. And so our, our idea of beauty is actually a lot more forgiving than we give it credit for, but there's still this inc- intense attention paid to these minute aspects of beauty, when really I think the human eye is a lot more generous than that. No, absolutely. And just, I mean, attraction is is subjective anyway, right? I mean, sometimes you won't even see the female, but you'll hear her playing a piano at a, you know, at a, at an event or something. And all of a sudden you're still attracted. So, and there's more to it, I guess, too. And, and that's one of the things I, I liked about what you're doing is you, you did also uh, interviewing, you went around and interviewed a lot of women as well to try to figure out how this research and how the pressures have impacted them. What, what did you find out through interviewing? What I found, you know, it's funny. When I started writing about beauty and interviewing women about beauty, I expected to find some sort of correlation between how a woman, how a woman either felt about herself or her general attitudes about beauty and sort of her how conventionally beautiful she was. I went in there sort of thinking that maybe there would be some sort of rhyme and reason there, and there absolutely wasn't. It was really interesting. And in fact, at a certain point, I just started interviewing people over the phone more because I learned pretty quickly what they looked like genuinely didn't matter. Hmm. And that was, that was really interesting to me. Um, what I learned was that there wasn't... There wasn't one story. I think we're sort of told, because there are a lot of pressures on women to look a certain way, and we're told that that pressure makes women feel bad about themselves. And what I learned is that that is a problem, absolutely, but that it's most women have a much more rich relationship with their self-image than just, oh, I don't look like the magazine, so I don't feel good about myself. 
a lot of women, it goes up and down. You know, they might feel great about themselves one day and not so great the next. It wasn't like this linear relationship. It, was, it wasn't some sort hmm. of trajectory about learning to just, you know, accept who you are. It's a, it's a lot more contradictory than that. It's, and I guess it's and a dynamic, right? It's constantly in flux. Exactly. Dynamic is the perfect word there. And it's shaped, you know, by your mood. What I find is that it, my mood absolutely affects how I feel about my, my looks. It doesn't actually change how I look, you know, unless I'm frowning or something. You're not going to be able to tell just by looking at me. But it affects what I see in the mirror, absolutely. Hmm. And, and that's, I mean, one of the points you brought up in your article as well was um, uh, about makeup, too. And I know you talk about it in the book because, I mean, even we, we, sometimes makeup has a bad, you know, image in the world because – you know, it's somebody trying to put on a facade, a fakeness. But you said some of the research actually validates that it, it makes people feel better. Yes. A lot of women report feeling more confident when they're wearing it, um, and what's under, which to some degree makes sense because, sure. you know, makeup makes you look conventionally better. Well, so by the way, have- uh, I feel better when I'm wearing clothes. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so call me. I'm covering up totally. <laughs> exactly. Like, And that doesn't mean that you're ashamed of who you are or ashamed of what you look like. And I think that we've really come to frame makeup as, as that, as some sort of like, oh, well, you don't like how you look, so you have to change it. And I think most women, there are some women who do feel like they need to change how they look. Um, And that's, you know, that's, that's deeply unfortunate and worthy of concern. But I find that most women, they're wearing makeup to look more like themselves, if that makes sense. Like in my mind's eye, I'm a lot more, I look my best all the time. I look like I'm well-rested and, you know, well-fed and well-hydrated, when in, you know, reality, I don't always look that way because I don't get enough sleep and I don't always eat right. But with makeup, I can kind of fake it. And so I find that it just makes me look more like my best self. Mm-hmm. No, I I, I think we, we all want to to have some advantage to look or be our best self. And um, one of the things, too, that was really interesting about what I'm, I'm learning um, through your work is that th- this is a process of, um, of achieving beauty, right? Uh, the idea of beauty has, has kind of it, – it's, it's a process. Um, it's not just a thing. It's not just makeup, is it? It's not just our body. It's not just exercise. To talk about the process of achieving. Well, it's it's interesting because I think that a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of time, money and resources are poured into making us more beautiful, both on an individual level and on a collective societal level. But one of the things that I would like to see change about beauty is I don't want to see us treat it as a goal, as something that we are always striving toward, because the fact is, Beauty is one of those things that because it is sort of unquantifiable, you can always argue that there's never enough of it. You never have enough right. of it. Um, and I know that that's some plastic surgeons warn of that. They say that, okay, someone comes in, they've never liked their nose, they get their nose fixed, they walk away, they feel great. Other clients walk in there, they get their nose fixed, and that's not enough. They want their, their chin augmented, and then they want an eye lift. Mm. And I think that that's, that's something that we really, I, I don't want to treat beauty as an achievement for that exact reason. You know, it's really a rabbit hole that we can all fall into. And, and really, we can, find, we can find it in us now. It exists in us now. Absolutely. And that is one of the things that I think is really nice about makeup is that it can bring out what is already there, you know, just by using some art, basically. 
Yeah. Let's um, let's take a break. We're speaking with Autumn Whitefield Madrano, and if you, there's a bunch of different ways you can uh, get more information from her and 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 her work. If you go to her website, the uh, the dot com, that's a blog she started a while ago. She also um, obviously is uh, talking to us today about uh, her book, Face Value: The Hidden Ways Beauty Shapes Women's Lives. You can also go to her website, autumnwhitefieldmadrano.com. We're talking about beauty, the impact it has on our heads and our hearts. And uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about men and beauty and some of the myths also that we need to continue blowing up and uh, how to see people for who they truly are. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, you're killing us, ladies. Come on. Joining us on the line is Autumn Whitefield Madrano. She is the author of the book Face Value, The Hidden Ways Beauty Shapes Women's Lives. And uh, she's uh, she's been featured and appeared in many of the uh, females female magazines, Marie Claire, Glamour, Salon, um, you name it, plus other other uh, organizations like The Guardian as well. Interesting insight, folks, that we're receiving there. You know, beauty, it's it, it kind of gets a bad rap a lot of times. Um, and so based on some a lot of research and a lot of interviews, Autumn Whitefield Madrano has put together the book and is walking us through the myths we need to blow up about beauty and also, you know, maybe how to how to how to position ourselves and and even I I mean I'm thinking about this for my children and um and others that I influence so that they can they can really try to find their inner beauty. Autumn Whitefield Madrano, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Talk to me about um society. I mean Beauty. It's it's interesting. As a guy, I um I I should probably worry more about how I look, but I don't. And uh, my wife tells me I should too. But talk to me about the pressures and some of the research you found about men and women and beauty. You know, we're at a really interesting time with men's relationship to beauty, um, in the sense of just on a pure level of like the beauty market. It's exploded for men in the past 10 years. Um, you know, once upon a time, men would go to the store and there'd be, you know, maybe an aftershave and some razors. And now, yeah. now I mean, the product is it's one of the fastest growing segments of the beauty industry is products for men. And it's funny, after, when I tell this to women, sometimes the reaction is, oh, good. Well, now they know what it's like for <laughs> us. And I understand the response. I absolutely do, because there is an undue burden placed upon women that men haven't really had. But I'm really wary of it as well. I think because what we're doing is we're telling men that they're, we're, we're increasing the amount of pressure on them to look a certain way, to groom themselves um, beyond just basic hygiene, but to look to meet like a certain standard. But we're not giving them the playful aspects of beauty. Because, yeah, okay, women, we have to meet this beauty standard. But if we want to like paint on, you know, like winged purple eyeliner and put nail art on our fingernails, we can do that. And no one looks twice about it. They, they think it looks cool. Yeah. 
But if men do that, there's there's still a big stigma that goes along with that. You're very much, for a man to wear eyeliner, he's still very much an outlier if he does that. And so I think that there's still a deep restriction on men. They're sort of in this weird in-between place. They have to look right, but they can't take the outright joy in it that women are permitted to. And, I mean, even something as simple as um, a lotion for men uh, that, I mean, I didn't grow up with men having their own lotion, and now I have a teenage boy that can't go to school if he can't use the lotion for men. Exactly, and it, and it's so funny because I know that you know obviously there are some lotions that are fragranced, you know, yeah. in a way that is traditionally associated with. with women. There's plenty of unscented lotions out there mm-hmm. that are for men and women, right? But yeah, then there's just lotion for men. Uh-huh. Like, what is what does that even mean? I don't you know, know, but he likes it a, like a lot. Working shot, yeah, exactly. And, and it's funny because you, I see my teens much more involved in their look. I mean, maybe I guess I was that way back in the day. I guess it's because you just found the joy of the opposite sex. But mm-hmm. um, it's a, I guess a lot of this is, is seemingly natural. But then too, like you're saying, there's a, there's it's starting to open up for men to be able to to um, show and, and differentiate themselves um, and, and by just even their haircuts, their styles. Talk about the, the impact social media has on all of this. Oh, gosh. Social media has been, I mean, forgive me the tired phrase, but a game changer um, in that we're all so much more aware, not just how we look. I don't think it's changed our awareness of our of how we actually look, but rather we are constantly curating our own images. We're constantly choosing what we want to show the world, and we're showing the world a more multifaceted part of ourselves. Um, and you see that more and more with newer social media like Snapchat, where it's so ephemeral, you know, it comes and it goes, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to something more, a little more old school like Facebook. Um, I think what it's doing is it's making, there's actually, this has been documented for men specifically, it has made them more likely to objectify themselves, to treat themselves as an object, as something to be looked at, instead of a body to be lived in. And I think that that's very interesting, because it's something that traditionally has been ascribed to women. You know, we we have long been the decorative objects throughout history, so we've sort of self-objectified. But with social media, we're seeing the biggest change now with men, and I find that really interesting. Does and as we age, it's interesting too because now we're living longer than ever before. We have more technology to help us. We have more, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals to help us. Is I guess what happens to us if if we have a life where our our maybe our outer beauty becomes so. A priority that our inner beauty hasn't yet been able to see the light. Does that naturally just change as we age, or does it end up becoming a problem for us that maybe induces more psychological problems the older we get? Well, you know, right now, most people report being happier with their looks as they grow older. Hmm. And I think that that goes hand in hand with that sort of inner beauty that you're speaking about. Um, we'll see how that changes, because this is research done on people who are older now, you know, step, step right. and above. So once it becomes the norm to be living till you're 90, 100, beyond, um, I'll be interested to see how that changes. But it makes a certain sort of sense, because the older you get, the less self-conscious you get. And the less self-conscious you get, the more sort of comfortable you are in your own skin. Do, do you f- inner oh. beauty versus outer beauty, I mean... 
it's not a trade-off. We can all have all right. <laughs> we can exactly. have all of it. And also, the way that a person, and we've all ha- had that experience of meeting someone who is stunningly gorgeous, and in two minutes of talking with them, they become less attractive because there's something unappealing about them. And vice versa, you meet someone who's sort of okay-looking, and then the more you get to know them, the more their inner beauty shines, and you liter- your eyesight it's almost like your eyesight actually changes when you see them. Yeah. And that's a documented phenomenon. So our inner, they're not strictly separate. It's a, that is such an interesting thing because as I work with clients, um, it, it has never – I haven't understood some of the most beautiful uh, people on the outside I have found uh, have, have such a – what's the word um, – Almost an emptiness. It's it's almost like mm. how they've been treated because of their beauty. Um, they they never felt they never and it was I don't think it was because of them. It's almost like they were objectified. So everything that they were always told was about their their objective beauty. Um, but they they seemed to struggle a little bit on the inside to believe that they were worth more than their looks. And you know I don't know about uh, studies that support sort of like personality qualities going hand in hand with conventional beauty. But to some degree, that does make a certain amount of sense that if, if everyone is only propped up your outside, if that's the first thing everyone compliments about you, and if that's sort of what you're known for, then it might be easy to believe that that's what you mm-hmm. have to offer the world. And I think that that's really a shame. But then, you, you know, I think so much of that has to do with upbringing. Yeah, and family parenting, and, right. Yeah. Because yeah. that same is true with a child that's a really strong athlete, and all mm-hmm. we talk about is their athletic ability. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. People you know, are funny. much more than that. Yeah. And no matter what, even things that, that are legitimate things that we want to praise people for. You know, I was always, you know, quote, unquote, the smart kid, which, of course, felt great. But then what that meant was that other facets of my personality, I sort of downplayed because that was my thing. I was the smart kid. So yeah. I, didn't try to be funny. I didn't try to be creative. I was just, you know, in my books. <laughs> yeah, you were just studying. Exactly. Is um, what do you see uh, the parallel between beauty and confidence? Is there is and do you see with women as they're finding their, themselves more as they have more and more options for what's acceptable to be and what how they can look? Is it impacting a, a woman's ability to feel more self confident? There is a relationship between conventional beauty and confidence in that people who are extraordinarily – people who are conventionally beautiful overall tend to report being a little more confident. But what was more interesting to me is that the population at large tends to really overestimate all of the positive qualities that go along with being beautiful. We tend to think that beautiful people are more way more confident than they actually are, that they make more money than they do, that they're healthier than we are. We meaning, you know, sort of the most yeah. people who are, you know, nice yeah. looking but average. And when in fact, there are benefits that go along with being beautiful besides just, you know, looking nice. But the benefits are not that great. They're not as, we tend to exaggerate them and place more importance on them than is actually there. Whew, good. Because yeah, right? <laughs> some things are harder to get. Um, exactly. What uh, What do you see going forward? Where do you What are some of the trends you think will be hitting us in the next twenty years? You know, I th- from what I'm seeing among millennials and teenagers, I'm seeing a lot more outright artifice in a way that I celebrate. I don't see it as 
unfortunate because we're talking things that are in the realm of fantasy, you know, uh, totally unnatural colors on the face and hair, really wild, fun nail art. And it's, you know, I, I just turned 40, and so for me to look at the young people and say that is one thing, um, we'll see if that is an ongoing trend, or not even a trend, but a real shift. Yeah. Um, or if it's something that's just, oh, young people being young. But I think that we might see more of that playfulness, and I, I hope that we see that among men and women. Yeah. Interesting, huh? So just, you know, kind of non-natural, I guess, looking colors and... And on our faces and and places that we might not normally worry about. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't want I don't want it to lead to an increased scrutiny of our bodies. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, but but rather just to revel in the sort of playful, you know, it's body paint in a way. Like, why not celebrate yeah. it that way? Yeah, w- wear it out there, man. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff, Autumn. We appreciate you. Uh, good luck on the book Face Value: The Hidden Ways Beauty Shapes Women's Lives. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. You bet. Her name is Autumn Whitefield Madrano. You can go to her website, autumnwhitefieldmadrano.com, and uh, look up the book, Face Value, folks. We'll take a break, come back, continue to uh, keep looking for the things that are good in the world. And you know what? There's a lot coming up. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, a little coach's corner for you as we talk about beauty um, and we talk about self-esteem, right? So we want to we want to have this belief in ourself, but uh, we got to be really clear what self we're talking about because when you think of you, you are not just you. You are made up of a body, you're made up of a mind, you're made up of a spirit, you are made up of a bunch of different thoughts and paradigms and beliefs about who you are. So be really careful. Um, as you try to grow self-esteem, you, you got to focus somewhere. And my concern is that many people spend the majority of their time trying to build self-esteem, probably working on only one of the three components of self-esteem, which is the body. So your body, a great tool, right? A great source, brings you the chemistry, you know, it allows you to feel the pleasure and the pain of the world. You can rip, you can get those ripped abs like I've got, you know, buns of steel, muscles galore, rippling. Okay, don't be rude. And you, you can have all of that going for you. You can be stronger than everyone else. You can be faster. You can uh, financially go make all the money you want to take care of your body and your body's needs. You can drive the nice car, something to put your body into. You can buy the best clothes. And interestingly, it won't necessarily make you feel better. It will for a while. But eventually, if you want true self-esteem, you're going to have to go deeper than the body, right? So eventually, you're going to want to – you're going to jump into your mind, and the mind is where you you know you want to start you know having some power. You want to be more popular. Do you want some of the things that are less tangible? Not a car necessarily, but you want prestige. You want popularity. You want people to like you. And you'll realize that your car's great, but it doesn't mean people actually like you. They might just use you for your car. So as you move into your mind, you're gonna you're going to you're gonna like it. Your mind likes you know looking good. It likes 
being popular. It likes having, you know, maybe not even you're not even going to sit there and like sit in your money and just play in all your money. That's the tangible stuff. But you just like knowing that you have more than others. So that becomes a mind game for you now. Now your mind is being satisfied because you're getting ahead supposedly in life. The problem with your mind, though, is um, you're never going to be good enough because eventually you're going to have a neighbor move in that will have more money than you. So your mind alone isn't where you're going to find self-esteem either. It's not going to be in your mind that you – because your mind's constantly going to be comparing you. And you're either going to have to be better or just worse than everywhere else, and your mind's going to kind of bifurcate it and make it an either-or. So the true source of essence is always going to be in the spiritual side. Essence is your ability to have less and be okay with it. It's your ability to be present. Essence is that good feeling you feel when you are doing something that is noble and good that you love to be about. It's holding your grandchild. It's holding your child. It's that silent night in the middle of the night when you're just rocking your baby back to sleep and you just feel peace. It's when you're serving. It's when you're out in nature. That's where your true sense of who you are comes from. It's usually in the quiet times we find ourselves. It's not in the loud, busy dance halls or bars that you're going to find your true identity. Super fun. But in the end, you got to be okay with yourself. You got to know what your purpose is. You've got to feel some connection to a higher power. Your true self, your true esteem is going to come from knowing that why you're here on this earth and what you're doing here and being connected to some bigger purpose. And I'd also say being connected to a higher power. And you can go determine what that higher power is. But if we're not connected to it, then what can you esteem? The highest power I've, or the highest esteem I have is knowing that I'm a child of, some, of God, of something bigger than myself. That brings me more self-confidence than anything I could do or have or say. Anyway, just a little coach's corner. Take it or leave it. We'll take a break, friends. We'll come back, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Marriage is hard, right? And it's, it's even harder just with the typical issues of life. A spouse maybe that is sick, uh, somebody that has lost their job or has mental health issues. There's so many different problems that can come up. Uh, So am I just supposed to stick it out and stay with somebody that doesn't get me? I hear that all the time. And I don't know. But what will you become? And if you do stick it out... And what will you become if you don't? I I think our assumption is, well, my life would be so much better without it. But many times I think my my wife's differences, her challenges and her tendencies force me to become a better person. They force me to become the change. And I understand that that doesn't always bring happiness today, but it brings change, growth over time. So 
maybe there is a benefit to sticking in it a little longer. And there would be even a greater benefit if my partner would get the fact, too, that they need to change, right? I mean, I have clients that have been living in a one-sided marriage for years, and their spouse does not seem to get it. They think, ah, she's lucky. I am the greatest man in the world. And so I sit there and I worry because a guy says, no, seriously, you are so lucky to have me. (laughs) Yeah. It may not. There's a little video of a marriage fight. Uh, it may not it, it may not be what you think it is. And you can keep blowing smoke that you're just a saint, but the reality is everyone's got issues. And if, if we can't get real with each other, then we're probably going to have to – we're going to become something a lot less than we can become as humans. We're going to fall apart. So there are maybe some ways to motivate your spouse. You don't have to cross the line. You don't have to use ultimatums. Um, you don't have to beat them up if you need to see some change. But one of the things you might want to do is is find a way to feel love for your partner before you bring up an issue. Most of the time I've found that when we're bringing up our issues with our spouse, we're not bringing up the issue out of love. And why this is so critical is because if I'm feeling anger, if I'm feeling frustrated, if I feel like you're taking advantage of me, then I will approach the conversation through that paradigm, through that way of thinking. And when I do that, my tone's going to be totally off. If I have compassion for my partner who maybe doesn't know how to communicate very well, and I feel love, and I feel an appreciation for them, if I can feel that when I go into the conversation, it might help me actually position our discussion better versus if I'm going into the discussion out of judgment. So be careful. Watch out for how you approach and the tone you approach with. Also make sure that you find the um, on switch that's inside your partner. We need to get into people deeply first and find out what does motivate them. There are things that motivate your partner, and there are things that motivate your partner to be a better partner to you. You've seen it at times. So go in and actually pay attention to what they are telling you that, that is a driver. Pay attention to when they are happiest and most connected to you, right? It might be when you're sitting on the couch watching a football game, even though you hate football, but you notice they're so much more into you, or they're not into you, but they're at least connected in a way, their way. We got to remember the on switch might be on in inside our partners. We need to go find it in there. Just a couple of ideas, folks, to help you uh, motivate your partner. Find the good. Let's do it. Let's work better on our marriages, guys. Pick it up. Do your part. Come on. It's all we got. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. With just the political race the way it is, life seems kind of stressful, doesn't it? Now it's summer, so. Sometimes that relieves some of the stress. Maybe you'll be taking a vacation. But I wanted to give you some some ideas, some tools to de-stress your life a little bit. And I got uh, some of these from Fortune Magazine, 15 Things to Do When You're Feeling Stressed, uh, a great article that was out on June 8th. And, you know, we, we need it. We need to find a way to de-stress if we can. Uh, but one of the ways, the fastest ways that, you know, you may not be thinking about is to increase 
To decrease stress, you need to increase your endorphin production. And one of the quickest and surest ways to, to, do, uh, to do that is, you know, just get to the gym. Take a walk. Uh, anything that releases endorphins. Because uh, with endorphin releases, there's the, the, that good feeling, that positive feeling in your body. So anything, take a walk today. And, and maybe just because the news is tense and you got a lot of people that will be talking about it maybe at work, take a break. Get out. Don't just sit around the water cooler and, and keep talking about it. Instead, get up. Go for a walk. Even if you just walk around your building or um, just walk around your, wherever you are at home. So positive tool, just get some exercise in you, just simple stuff. Not You don't have to sweat it out, but something simple. Also, um, maybe a good day today, too, to watch what you're eating. Uh, if you want to decrease your stress, obviously, you might want to watch and, and minimize your um, your caffeine intake, but also watching out for the food you eat. And we've talked about it with uh, our great Ron Hager. He's telling us all the time, eat whole foods, don't drink your, don't drink your sugars. Um, Create a, a create a space for yourself. Uh, one thing I've done recently at my own house, I'm writing a, a new book, and I just try to get away. I go to my office, sit down there, and just escape and find a space where I can meditate. Um, I'm getting a little bit better at that. I also have to learn to say no. That's something I'm not great at. We've had on the show just recently some tools on how to say no. So you just go look back in our archives on iTunes or on TuneIn, and you can see a complete interview or two within the last two weeks about learning to say no. Also, um, make a list of your goals, and when you accomplish a goal or even a part of a goal that you're trying to work on, check it off. That also creates a little endorphin, a little dopamine push for you as well. Um, another way to de-stress would be get lost in a great book. When was the last time you read a book, especially a great book? Um, possibly another opportunity for you is to talk to other people. And uh, they're calling them mastermind groups. But now more and more people have these groups where they can go share their ideas of what they're doing in their business. It's kind of people that are in similar fields as you. If you're a leader, they might be leaders. Um, if you're a manager, you might have management groups you can go talk to. But get out and talk to other people. I also suggest you leave the office. Get out of the office. Get out of your space. Try to get more sleep. Serve someone. All tools to help you uh, take your life back and hopefully de-stress. So what we're trying to do on the show, help you live longer and get through these tougher days where the news isn't so pretty. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Earlier we were talking about how simply the tone that of how your name um, is, is pronounced, like uh, the phonemes they were calling it, how it comes off the tongue may come off with a, a harshness of tone or maybe a softness of tone, which, which then sends a signal to another person, the listener, that you've got a masculine name or maybe a more a softer name, like Ben. So, you know, it's it's just tone. And it's something we don't always pay attention to. But in my world of working with couples and communication and people, tone is telling, right? Tone matters. And so I wanted to spend a little time in the coach's corner, talking about our tone. And um, it's it really is, I think, a really powerful indicator 
of of what somebody is actually feeling, of their emotion. Emotion is best managed and understood probably through somebody's uh, tone, more through their tone than their words. So pay attention to the tone, right? Tone, remember, is communication. When somebody says, and you can tell they're down, they're depressed, they're in the sitting on the couch, their arms are folded, they look sad, and you say, are you okay? And they're like, fine. Do you hear the tone? That means they're okay, right? <laughs> yeah, Ben, they're fine. Yeah, because sometimes, like... Kaylee yeah. and I will talk like that, and she'll say that. But she's really sad. That's but why she I, says she's okay, so I assume she's okay. Yeah, because she said, I'm okay, but her tone was like, yeah, I'm fine. Can you hear that? It's I subtle. hear, I'm fine. Okay, how about this? Yeah, I'm fine. Do you hear that? She's almost singing. Okay. Yeah, some people, some people are tone deaf. Some people can't hear it. And I appreciate Ben being honest with us today because tone, it's, it's communication, right? Tone tells the deeper story. Tone is our friend, not our foe. When somebody, oh, don't you give me that tone. Rapping. Yeah, Ben, just sit this one out because that, you might be missing the point. Uh, it's not, but, you know, tone. Some people just don't hear it, but tone does communicate uh, distress and levels of stress. So here are some keys. I'm going to give you five keys to recognizing and and either taming your tone when you need to tame it down or recognizing another person's tone, okay? Five basic keys. Pay attention to them. Ben, take notes because you are going to need – to take notes on this one. Okay. Okay. You, you, ben, don't take notes. Don't take notes. Yes, sir. Just listen with your mouth shut. Just listen. Number one, tone is um, tone is not personal. Okay. Tone is not. It's not. They're not trying to beat you up. It's not a personal thing. Tone is just. A vibration that's coming from the emotion. It's the it's the real issue. So here are the tools. First, you got to read the signs of distress. Read the tones. If you hear volume getting louder, if you hear the pitch getting higher, or if you notice the pace of the conversation going faster, you got to see those signs. When you see those signs, it's telling you, pay attention to this one. <laughs> This one's a little more erratic. If they're saying things, but they're not saying, but their emotion is showing energy, but they're not communicating using words that show they're mad. For example, just listen to how often we can change the same sentence. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Same sentence, four different meanings. I didn't say that. Okay, so it wasn't you. You did not say that. I didn't say that. You really didn't say what I'm accusing you of saying. I didn't say that. Okay, you didn't speak it. Oh, you wrote it? Okay, you wrote it down on the board. Is that what you did? You didn't say it. You wrote it. I didn't say that. Okay, so you did write it. You just didn't write what I'm saying you wrote. 
And the only way we can make sense of those same four words, I didn't say that, is by changing our tone and our inflection, right? So we're using this all of the time. But if you hear the volume getting louder, that should tell you something. If you notice the pitch is getting higher, that should tell you something. If you notice it's speeding up, pay attention to it. Then be careful and soften your heart. You cannot not communicate, right? So if I react to your negative tone and I get into my negative tone, then your tone is going to bounce off of me and I'm just going to attack you. Instead, I need to absorb what you're bringing on, your tone. And I don't need to absorb it so I'm destroyed and I can't feel anything. I absorb it so I can better understand you. I want you to share with me so I can better understand you. So I have to soften my heart and allow you to allow this information into me. And instead of just taking the negative interpretation and going with it, I need to I need to not just run with it. I need to get myself centered, focus on what I'm trying to do with you. I'm trying to be an influence, I'm trying to help you. And if you can, alter the mood. Or alter the mode with how I'm going to handle this and how I'm going to adjust the mood. So if I if I can and they're mad at me and I can see I'm not mad. I'm just tired. Okay, I'm sorry. And I might even at times Give them some space. But if I come back in the room five minutes later and they seem happier, then I'm going to point out you seem happier. Sometimes it's better to just quit talking and maybe find a different mode of communicating, like a letter, a text. And then change what you can in the conversation and realize there are certain things you can't change. But I don't have to get louder because you are. I don't have to get, you know, higher screaming because you are. I don't have to run because you do. Just change the tone, the tempo, the timing. Basic stuff. But hard, isn't it? We'll take a break. Be back. More fun. Stick with us. Doesn't that sound like your child playing? Welcome back, folks. To the Matt Townsend Show. How many times have you sat at your house and, and heard the, those scales being played? And, uh, you know, you'd love them to be played as cleanly as that, right? And how many times does it just not work out like that? So music lessons and uh, teaching your children to play, it's uh, it seems like a really... It seems like just, you know, something we do and we've always done it and we just... it's it's a It's a piano, for heaven's sakes. How much has a piano changed? Well, a lot. And uh, one of the things I'm finding, even in my own life, um, I have a daughter who graduated, who's been uh, from uh, the University of BYU here, in fact. But she she has been teaching piano for years, for since she was about 15, 14, I believe, and has actually engineered a pretty interesting little method of teaching kids music. She opened her own studio. She has a bunch of other teachers that follow her philosophy. And part of her philosophy is using these lessons to create more than musicians, um, really, to help them create healthy, you know, strong, confident children. But she also is very quick to let these kids play a lot of the music that they like to play because she found it keeps them interested. It keeps them engaged. They can still learn the basics, and they can still go in-depth with classical music, 
but also she can keep a bunch in the game that wouldn't normally stay. So when I saw this next uh, the article by our next guest, Dr. Clint Randalls, I thought, okay, we got to get this guy on the show. He wrote an article entitled, Why Music Lessons Need to Keep Up with the Times. When you think about it, technology has changed, right? Um, now our students can actually, with their computers and their keyboards, their keyboards can plug into their computers. They have drum sets that are all just touch pads. You don't even need a full drum set anymore. You can now actually copy some of the best uh, sound from the most incredible pianos on earth and connect them into your uh, electronic keyboards and all of a sudden you're playing an incredible, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollar piano power of technology. So if technology is changing and music has changed a bit, uh, don't, don't you think it's time that we get our music lessons up to speed? Clint Randalls joins us. He is an associate professor of music education at the University of South Florida. And we welcome him to the show. Clint, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you for having me. What, uh, what an interesting article. I'm a total believer in, in what you're teaching us, but, but teach us, talk to us. What, what is happening to music lessons? Are the kids as involved in music as they used to be? Is it trending up? Is it trending down? Is it the same? Well, I have to say this is the most exciting time in the history of music to be a music teacher because we have so many things at our disposal. We have traditions thousands of years old uh, to draw upon, um, knowing that uh, humans have been musical since there have been humans. Uh, music has always existed, and probably the first music that we ever hear is the sound of our mother's heartbeat. Hmm. So we've had it for our entire lives, and for the history of humankind, we've always had music. Um, just recently, though, um, we, we've developed the, the ability to record audio um, in very sophisticated ways using multi-track recording technology that's available on our telephones, um, available on our I, um, iPads and our, our computers. Mm. And I, I was a teacher in Michigan in 2004, and GarageBand came out, and it blew my mind um, because something that would have cost thousands of dollars to um, to purchase and develop now can be under my arm, <laughs> and I can I can take it from building to building. In fact, then I t- I, I went from building to building on a skateboard I, <laughs> to get there a little quicker. That's the kind of teacher I was. Um, and so um, you, you have the ability to record sound, um, which is the primary way that people experience music. If you um, you know, we, we like to get out to concerts. All of us like to hear live music, and it's, it's incredible when we have the chance to do that. But typically, we're searching YouTube. You know, we're Googling um, artists and we're looking at music videos and we're streaming things on our phone. All of that music was recorded by someone. And so um, it brings to the table uh, the, the necessity to teach teachers and to teach students how to record their own sounds. Oh, man. Honestly, I've seen this firsthand change the lives of some of my kids where they were able to take music exactly like you said. They were able to then edit it produce it, add their own vocals to it, and get it up on YouTube and make money on it. I mean, I have a child that's making 500 to to $1,000 a month with music. And, and he was yeah. doing that sitting in our basement and doing it all by himself. And it turned him, it turned a passion into something, um, into a job, an occupation. Yeah, the, I, it, part of the job that I do here at USF, I work with students with special needs. And um, some of them have very big disabilities that um, they, they 
uh, present obstacles to doing everything in their life. And a lot of the a lot of the difficulties are social, but you you give them the ability to manipulate sound as you've just described at a computer when they, where they can do it by themselves. They can do they can isolate all of the sounds, and they're not you know the the cacophony that um, in our large rehearsal space with large ensembles. Um, in, uh, there's a lot of sound, and, and, yeah. and it's hard to control all that sound. And, and some of them have very specific needs where they have an aversion to that. So you put them in the driver's seat um, in one one of these mediums where they can manipulate, they can add, they can record, and 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 produce things. We find that they, like you said, they can be they can have a job and something that can sustain their livelihood. More than that, they can. I mean, it, it's the root of why music is so essential to all of us it, it moves us it's beautiful and enriches our lives have the uh, as these technologies have been changing i mean really i guess they've been changing for centuries right with with thomas edison's phonograph in 1877 we could now record music um what's powerful about these new teaching approaches though is my, my daughter's organ company can actually all of all of her pianos are um are are uh, their keyboards, but they're they're nice keyboards. But you can record every lesson. You can record every recital. They can um, they can record a, a healthy version of the song that the child can listen to over and over and over as they're as they're you know practicing. So, are we are we advancing our our methods of teaching along with the technology, or, or are we still behind, way behind? Well, we, I mean, I first have to say that um, I'm among a pool of people around the country and around the world who are grappling with us right now. We, we just had a summit, the College Music Society had a summit in South Carolina where we talked about 21st century musicianship and how we educate all musicians. You know, I'm in the music teacher realm, and so I, I deal with K-12 students and uh, music in the schools, and I prepare teachers to go out in, into that environment. Um, but it, uh, it, we... We, the system is structured to keep everything the same. Mm. And we've, um, you know, Clifford Geert said that humans are suspended in webs of significance that we have self, we ourselves have spun. And we've developed this culture where it, it's classical music, primarily Western, um, Western classical music from certain composers. And um, there's a linear way to learn music that starts with notation and not sound. And how unnatural is that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you think about how you learned language, you didn't write first. Right, you right. And you made sounds, and you played around with sounds. And that's the opposite of what we do when we teach students how to, how to uh, play an instrument. We start with notation. So it's backwards. Yeah. And um, so there, there are a lot of things that, um, that, that are fixations that we have about what music education can be that we have to look beyond, we have to get past. And there are places around the country that are sort of leading the charge, places like Miami uh, Frost School of Music, places like uh, the USC Thornton School of Music in L.A., uh, places that are bringing in contemporary music alongside classical, um, you know, knowing that music is this great, big, beautiful world. And if we would only let all of the light in, we'd be able to work with all that we have at our disposal. Yeah. So we're... We're essentially we're limiting ourselves to a narrow genre and a narrow way of being musical, and 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 then um, and I guess forcing that as kind of the only way, the only method 
because that's, like I have I have a I had a daughter that could do it right. She could do the notation first. She that just worked for her brain perfectly. But I had a son. It didn't work. It didn't work. And the more we would drill him on the notation, the more frustrated he would become. Until he eventually we we didn't want to pay for the lessons anymore. And so what he just did by himself is he went in and sat down at the piano and just started making the notes, playing the sounds until he learned by ear and then mm-hmm. has kind of circled back and then learned the notation. And so we, it's almost like we, we have never allowed it to be. But by the way, so many people still come up to him from the other school of thought and, and kind of critique him for not having done it the other way. Yeah, that's, that's the, the really the sad part. I mean, the saddest part, it, it's really a diversity thing. It's really a social justice thing. Because we've looked at all the ways that people can be musical, and, we, and we've said, we've sort of decided as a profession or a, or a society that this, this way of performance from notation under the direction of a person, that's more worthy and that's more worthwhile. I mean, we're, we've elevated that to the point where it, 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 um, there should be a music teacher um, in your son's class that, that says that that way that you just made music, the way that you picked it up, by your ear and you, you can now play it, that's valuable and that's as good as this. Mm-hmm. It's like, what would what would we do with Louis Armstrong? You know, <laughs> we would kick him out of our music. Right. What's he doing here? Right. Jimi Hendrix, get out. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, Paul, Paul McCartney and George Harrison's teacher in Liverpool didn't find any potential in them. They were in the same music class. They had the same music teacher. And the way, the way that they shined as musicians wasn't, it fell beneath the radar of the music teacher because they weren't keen to all of the ways that people can be musical. So hmm. it, that's just sad. I mean, it, they made it. Yeah. You know, we know we know of them, but how many how many people's lives could be enriched by music teachers that simply said that that thing that you do is is great and valuable and it has a place here. Yeah. Oh, it's so so true. And because they're these kids are listening to the music anyway. They love the music anyway. They're attracted to the music anyway but they don't feel like it's accessible in certain ways. We're going to come back. More uh, great information from Dr. Clint Randalls, and he's an associate professor of music education at the University of South Florida, and we'll continue this discussion of why music lessons need to uh, keep up with the times. When we come back, we'll be talking some solutions about how we can keep, uh, you know, still keep the classics alive in our lives, but also introduce other methods of, of getting these children into the music. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you hear the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we're talking about why music lessons need to keep up with the times. You know, it's hard. You got you've got a different philosophy. Everyone has a different approach and different needs, but uh, there is still seemingly a common love of music among our children. But uh, a lot of times, the songs that they're asked to play while while preparing and practicing have have no direct correlation to the music they listen to. Um, joining us on the phone is Dr. Clint Randalls. He is an associate professor of music education at the University of South Florida and has over two or over 20 peer-reviewed articles published um, uh, in, in, uh, in different magazines and, and in different peer-related um, 
um, uh, notebooks and workbooks. But one of the things that he's also uh, a big, a big, I think, um, proponent of is at least being able to look at how we teach music differently and learn and study. Um, Clint, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thank you so much for your insight on this. Well, thanks again. Thanks for having me. Talk to us about what are some of the, the, the things you've been learning as you have studied, uh, you know, pedagogy and how to teach um, some of these classes, these music classes. What are some of the advancements and what are some of the new and innovative ways that we could be teaching our kids music? Well, like I said before, this is the most exciting time, I think, in the history of music to be a music teacher because of all of the things that we have to work with. And um, actually, right now, I'm um, in the middle of teaching a master's course on learner-centered pedagogies where we're, we're working with practicing teachers on how to implement some of these methods. Um, so there are, there are a number of big ideas. Actually, my students right now are listening to this. If you want to oh, great. They're, they're, Good. They're within earshot. <laughs> Good. So they're, they're from, from five states, eight teachers from five states around the country, and they, they've come to USF specifically um, because of this um, unique program that we developed. And so if you, anytime that you look at change, you look at the things that we do really well and sort of flip over the coin and look at what would the opposite of that be? And so you can look at, we do ritualized performance really well. So what would improvisatory performance look like? Huh. And how could we incorporate that? How could we bring that in? Well, if you look at cultures around the world, um, their, their systems of music are based on that. If you go into a community in, say, South Africa, um, you see people old and young making music, and it's a natural part of what they do. And um, you know, there's a play with sound. They welcome in the old ones and the young ones, and... Um, it's a communal thing. So um, if we do ritualize very well, if we flip it over and we say to ourselves, what would improvisatory look like? What would what would participatory music making uh, look like where there's very little distinction between audience um, and the listener? Huh. What would that look like? Um, and of course, uh, just knowing about how to record sound. And so I, I spent the last day and a half um, with our students here um, jamming and um recording some things that they jam to. And uh, we'll spend the afternoon um, doing more improvisation, um, bringing in songwriting. I have an iPad band that I'm a part of here at USF. Wow. Um, which was, at first it was laughed at. We, we were, we were the, the uh, laughing stock of the School of Music. Um, but we, we, we saw the value in what it could do for music teachers in the hands of creative music teachers, what it could mean for students. And so we continued. Uh, we've been on ESPN. We've, wow. we've played all over the country. We played at the, the National Opryland Hotel. Um, we've been paid. Uh, my highest paid gigs as a musician has been um, as an iPadist. Really? Uh, and, we, and, we and an iPadist. Explain it. So this is you uh, using your iPad to then capture sound and music and then replaying it? Yeah, we, we perform in a band um, with iPads using apps as instruments. So there are, there are five of us and a vocalist, hmm. and um, we can I can be the bass player, I can be the keyboard player, I can be the drummer, depending on what song that we're working on, and um, we jam just like just like an acoustic instrument. It, it in fact <laughs> is an instrument. It's, yeah. it's a highly versatile instrument that I can check my email and the scores to the baseball game on. <laughs> right, and watch some Netflix while you're practicing. 
Exactly, and we do that sometimes. <laughs> it's, but what's so amazing about it is this this advancement in technology. Um, uh, what's it called? My, so my son downloaded uh, the sounds from some of the most incredible pianos that cost so much money, and he can just embed them into his computer program, and they will play on his keyboard. And it literally sounds exactly like he's in a studio with this piano. I think your son and I would get along. Really oh, well. I think and you I think would maybe too. Maybe he should come to the University of South Florida. No, do you know what? I just thought. I just thought he's going to Florida. We got to send the boy to Florida. You know, yeah. Clint, talk about um, because even the idea of making a, a song up that could then be, you know, more fully produced. It's something you know. It seems like in traditional music worlds, we don't let them do that yet till they've learned the theory, the, all these other things first. Um, is there something missed if we go the other way, if we go to getting them practicing, getting them more in, in an improvisational approach? Um, c- can they still then go back and, and finish the loop, and do they need to? Well, those of us, many of us across the country um, espouse in, in part to a, a learning theory that that involves constructivism, and so people learn things when they really want it, when they really need it. Right. And um, we go about learning things all the time, um, guiding our own learning. We're we're self-guided learners, um, everyone, especially now that we have the Internet. I mean, we we can know everything instantaneously. And so many of us believe that more and more we should be putting students in the driver's seat of their education where they, um, they, they have an idea of what they want to play and they choose it. They choose their groups, and they go about figuring out how they can bring it bring it into being. And what we do as music teachers, and I've seen this over the last six years that I've been at USF, and, and the nine years that I was in K twelve schools, I should say that I, I have some credibility here. Yeah, those those there there are probably people listening from from where I taught, and they they know this to be true. That um, when you when you open that door for students and you and you allow them to be in the driver's seat, there's a passion for learning that um, is unique. And it's different than even the best teacher, um, you know, bringing about an inspiring performance by bringing things out of students. When they're bringing it out of themselves, um, it, it, it's a whole different level of meaning. Essentially what we're doing is we're putting them each on the podium. Hmm. You know, we're, we're letting them be the, the, the guiders and the directors of their own music. We're we're allowing them to play loud when they want to and to be soft when they want to and to be creative and to come up with their own ideas, which, you know, if I'm the third clarinetist in a band, um, how many of my original ideas does the band director really want to hear? <laughs> right, exactly. We don't need originality here. Because, <laughs> right? Yeah. A lot, but what's interesting about this, too, is you're simultaneously um, creating... Um, community. So you're not only teaching the children, for example, how to be creative and how to 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 uh, find a way to to um, to integrate in and hear what's going on, but it's about socializing. It's about it's about being able to feel what others are doing and anticipating what others will do as you're as you're playing. It's the flow Absolutely. idea, right? It's I mean it's yeah. it's jazz. It's it's the improvisational too. Mm-hmm. It, and it's an imprint of our identity. I mean, 
um, how how crazy are we about social media now? How crazy are we about um, putting ourselves out there that way? Um, when we're talking about making music that way, where you develop your own band and you name your band and you put your band's music online and you promote it, um, that that's a part of your identity. Hmm. I mean, it's like your profile picture. It's like your um, it's it's you. Yeah. It, it 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 carries a different meaning than if I said play your B flat scale through <laughs> octaves. And you know if you mess up on that, eh, it's just a scale. Yeah. You know? But if you if you if you tell me I wrote this song and you're singing it, and, um, you know, you mess that up, that, that's, or, or, or I say, I hate your song, you know, I hate that. That's, it, that cuts deeper, you know, it's more of, it's more of us. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're hurt, yeah, you're cutting me. But see, to me, that, this idea that our kids would own, own this, um, it, it's, it seems more healthy than a lot of the students that might be graduating that don't have a sense of ownership of what they've learned because they weren't allowed to deviate. Yeah, you could be a graduate student in music education. You could get a PhD in music education because we have these same discussions. And it, and um, to hear it from you, um, you know, you're not in the eye of retirement. You're not mm-hmm. having these, these discussions, but you're right at the heart of what we're thinking about right now. The profession is grappling with we're. We, we want people to be musical their whole lives, and we want to do everything that we can to give them the, the power and the, and the uh, to feel, to have the agency to, to, um, to, to believe that they can be musical for their whole life. Uh, have you seen, there's a, there's a documentary of Glenn Campbell uh-uh. um, right now. He, he, has, he has Alzheimer's, uh, and he's, his mind is almost gone. His memory is almost completely gone. You can't remember things that were just said. Um, but when you, you give him a guitar and you have him play guitar solo, he can play note by note perfect things that he that he learned in the '60s and the '50s. Oh wow, it's in there. So it's uh, yeah, it's, it's in uh, there. It's wrapped up. It's wrapped up in our minds and our being um, more than we can possibly know. I mean, we're we can do research and we can look at the brain images, but can we really know? Can we measure joy? Can we really validly uh, measure joy? And yeah. quality of life. Yeah. Powerful. It, it's difficult. It is. Well, Dr. Clint Randalls, we appreciate you, and uh, keep up your great work there at uh, at your University of uh, South Florida. Uh, and everybody, go check out his website, clintrandalls.com. It's the cutting edge, folks, and there's a point and a time where um, things are going to have to change. And it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that you have to let the classics die. Um, but you also have to let those that are alive live, right? Let let people live and and let them experience the joy of, of creation of their own of their own content. Stick with us, folks. We will take a break. We'll come back and uh, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, it's really hard, isn't it, when you've trained people, teachers, educators, we've trained them a certain way, they've researched a certain way, they've learned a certain way, and then these these tiny, these know, know-it-all young kids come in and want to change it all up. 
But uh, I'm telling you, as a father who um, have, I have six kids, and every one of them are different, and every one of them approach music um, in such a different way, except we still end up teaching them a very similar way. But this one, I had one kid that uh, music has become his saving grace, and yet it was the thing that was driving him berserk because we kept forcing him to learn it one way. And if he can't learn it, you know, what's your problem? Learn it this one way. Learn it this one way. And it wouldn't work. All my other kids are learning it that one way. Learn the notes, you know, learn notation, learn to read the notes, then you can make the sound, which, as Clint was telling us, is so backwards to how we really live in life. Babies are always making sounds before they've ever learned a note or learned to read a note. They're making the sounds first. It's the natural way we learn. And then we take music and we force this unnatural way um, to learn, which is no, 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 no. We don't, we don't make music. Music without notes is just noise. It's not even music. You're just making noise. So if you don't want to crush the heart and the spirit of somebody, then you're going to have to figure out how they want to learn it. In order to influence someone positively, you must first be influenced by them. You've got to let them lead their own learning. Now, I can't just let my kids just play willy-nilly, whatever they want. The biggest moment, I think, in our history as a family of um, learning music is when we finally just – we went and bought a Disney music book for piano that our kids, once they got to a certain point, they could play these Disney songs. And it changed my daughter because she had been playing the classical songs, everything you learn, just followed the routine. It was, she was doing great, but she was bored. And was ready to give up because none of this sounds like what she hears. So we bought her a silly little Disney book and holy cow, she took off. We also learned a way to get our kids involved in music was just simply by playing it a lot. I play music all of the time and um, we would gather around and let uh, our people listen to some great music. One of our favorite groups to listen to are called the Piano Guys. And um, just they're just incredible musicians, a cellist and a piano player, and they make great music, but they also make songs my kids have heard. And because they're, they're using these classical instruments, playing songs that my children love and have heard, it doesn't – now, well, Matt, you could get them to love classical music. Sure, you could. You could. And then when they go to a party that night, no one's going to put on Bach. They're not going to go to a dance – contest and play Bach. They, but my daughter could sit down and play piano, the piano um, guys, and all of a sudden could start getting her own sense of self and identity by being able to do something like that. Anyway, it is a powerful method to get um, people to grow, self-esteem, self-worth. It's a great way to get people to um, get out of their shell and to gain confidence. It's a powerful way to just live and magnify your talents. So be careful that you're not crushing somebody's dream because they're not learning it the way you think they need to learn it. 
Not everyone's brain is like yours. Not everyone has to suffer the way you did to learn music, right? Let your children influence you, and when you do, they'll come up with their own answers. They'll also stick with the game. They'll stick with the plan. If you have your children quitting a lot of stuff, it might be because they don't feel like they're a part of their own creation. Make sense? I don't know. Call me crazy, but it's working for my kids. I think it could work for yours. Just give them some space. And then once you see the way they want to go, lift it up, help it, enable it, give them the tools they need to make it happen their way. We'll take a break, folks. Come back a whole new hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.